The What Are We Doing podcast and the Aquatic Biosphere Project acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the histories, languages, and cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and all First Peoples of Canada, whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Welcome to today's Deep Dive episode. You'll be hearing from Dr. Steve Rudy, the chair of the Canadian Water Network's COVID-19 Wastewater Coalition. I will preface this episode with that this was recorded on December 14th, 2020. And as everyone knows, with COVID, everything seems to change every single week. There was no variance of concern at the time. And now it seems that variants are all we're talking about almost on the news. Between our interview and when this episode aired, I was able to reach out to Dr. Rudy, and he did actually let me know that we are starting to test for variants using this method. So there's lots of promise for it yet in the future, and I'm so excited that you're here listening to this episode with us today. Please sit back, relax, and get ready for our deep dive episode on wastewater surveillance for COVID-19. Air. Air. Bunny. G. Moana. Omi. Tubi. Agua. Low. Insu. Nihu. Nui. Nui. Roda. Miri. Echi. Chai. Shui. Maji. Wai. Nero. Aqua. Roda. Water we doing and how can we do better your one-stop shop for everything water related from discussing water its use and the organisms that depend on it for all the global issues that you really never knew all had to do with water i'm your host david evans from the aquatic biosphere project and i just want to ask you something what are we doing and how can we do better So unless you've been living underneath a rock, I'm pretty sure you'll have heard of this COVID-19 pandemic that we're all in. Now, I've been doing a lot of research into what we're doing because I've had to shove one of these tests up my nose and it's not pleasant. So what are we doing that we can test more people at once? There's got to be a simpler way. Today, we're talking to Dr. Steve Rudy, and I'm so excited to have you in for an interview. I'm so excited to pick your brain about wastewater surveillance and how we can and how we can test so many more people at once so dr steve rudy can you just introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about what you do okay well uh, my name is steve rudy uh, i'm a retired professor from the faculty of medicine and dentistry at the university of alberta uh, i have about 50 years of uh, practice and experience in uh, both uh, applications and research in environmental health sciences uh, for about the past 25 years, I've uh, focused on safe drinking water, was involved in the Walkerton Inquiry for people who were around 20 years ago, which was uh, one of our last public health disasters, but not anything like what we're going through now. Awesome. I'm originally from Ontario, so I'm familiar with uh, the Walkerton story. If you don't know much about it, then definitely go and take a look at that. It's a cautionary tale for sure. 
So could you just uh, start off, I guess, with explaining a bit about wastewater-based epidemiology and what it means? Okay. Well, this is a term that's largely been adopted for this activity. Uh, Probably a more accurate term would be to say wastewater-based surveillance. Epidemiologists will debate as to whether surveillance and epidemiology are interchangeable, but epidemiology really means uh, uh, connecting cause and effect, whereas surveillance is the data gathering uh, part that contributes to, uh, to epidemiology. So wastewater-based epidemiology is, uh, has a long track record uh, at various levels, but it was, has definitely been a, a, a niche uh, research area. Um, the idea being that uh, a lot of um, agents that can be found in, in the sewage from a community will reflect uh, the uh, practices and, and health status in that community. So uh, probably one of the more recent uh, activities has been to uh, you know, monitor sewage for uh, drug use and uh, particularly illicit drug use, which has uh, opened some oh, ethical issues. But uh, more relevant to what we're talking about here has been uh, to look for uh, signals from pathogenic microorganisms that uh, cause human disease and, and use that as a, a means of uh, getting a sense of how prevalent uh, that those diseases are in the community you're sampling. Very interesting. So does this have a long history? Was this developed originally here in Canada or where has this been used previously? There is a fairly long history. It's been primarily used uh, around the world. Probably the most uh, effective use has been uh, in monitoring uh, the efforts to eradicate polio by use of the polio vaccine. And so communities have been tracked for the prevalence of polio virus in wastewater as a means of judging how well uh, vaccination programs have, have been effective. Wow, I had no idea that it was used all the way back into polio. And just to be able to be used on that kind of a scale as a validation, that's really, really an interesting tool that, yeah, how did I not know about this? <laughs> like I say, it was, it was pretty much a niche specialty area. I, I would confess that before... Um, spring of this year, I wasn't uh, certainly aware that you could track pathogens in wastewater. And, and uh, you know, with my primary focus on drinking water, uh, there's been examples uh, in Canada, for example, the, the North Battleford outbreak that happened in 2001 uh, after Walkerton. Um, mm. They were able to uh, detect the cryptosporidium pathogen in, in wastewater from the community before or, or during and after the outbreak. So, you know, there have been miscellaneous applications out there, but uh, I confess I wasn't aware uh, that it was being used by World Health Organization and and, uh, other activities uh, like with the polio example. That's so interesting. So with this kind of uh, surveillance, these samples, where are they actually collected and uh, how are they analyzed and what are you testing for? I mean, that's that's got to be a, a pretty a pretty rough job going in and grabbing those samples, I can imagine. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing that's, uh, that's essential for this to have any uh, utility is that uh, the virus that you're looking for needs to be shed in feces so that it will show up in, you know, the toilet discharge that goes to a sewage system. 
Um, that was demonstrated early on in the case of, uh, of uh, COVID that we could detect the, uh, the virus uh, SARS-CoV-2 that, that causes COVID-19, that it is shed in feces, and therefore we would expect to find it in sewage. Um, the, the first evidence of that uh, that was uh, published internationally was out of uh, the Netherlands, where uh, uh, a group that had been practicing this kind of approach uh, in the past for different uh, pathogens got the uh, materials they needed to check for SARS-CoV-2 in wastewater, and, and they found it. Um, essentially, uh, where you sample in a, in a sewer system is a function of the monitoring system you're trying to uh, implement. The easiest method is to do it at a wastewater treatment plant because mm. uh, they routinely collect samples for regulatory and operations purposes. That's where the group in the Netherlands started this, and, and most groups have, have started doing the same thing. Uh, because they can just ask for portions of the samples that wastewater treatment plants are already collecting on, on what's coming into the plant. There are other efforts underway to actually go into the sewer system to try and you know track sources of infection back upstream. Uh, there has been applications uh, for specific institutions like prisons and long-term care facilities and so on, uh, where you try and collect the sewage from from a known institution. The sewage samples that are collected then need to be processed. Uh, they need to go through. Uh, uh, a preparation step that's not required for, for the clinical testing that's uh, typically done. But once the preparation stage is, uh, is completed, then the analytical stage is very similar to what uh, the clinical testing does. It uses something called polymerase uh, chain reaction or PCR, uh, which is a technique that was discovered a few decades ago that takes advantage of the self-replicating capability of, of uh nucleic acids that form the genetic code of life, um, you can stimulate these to uh, have very tiny amounts of, of that genetic material replicate itself uh, through various cycles. Uh, and uh, every cycle, it doubles. And, and uh, so if you go through uh, you know, dozens of cycles, you can end up uh, converting uh, undetectable amounts of, of uh, uh, the genetic signal into something you can measure. Um, so that's the essence of, of, of the technique. Hmm. Yeah, so you can take something that's really, really small and then grow that to uh, a size where you, it's actually traceable. Right, and and so the, a key thing to understand, and this was an uh, important early question that was being raised by people working uh, in the sewer network or working at treatment plants is, are we dealing with the actual virus, the infective agent uh, that would right. put people at risk? Or, or uh, as it turns out, what we're dealing with is, is measuring uh, portions of the genetic code from that. They, uh, we don't need the intact virus to be able to detect uh, those portions of the genetic code. And the evidence appears to be that uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 is not particularly uh, uh, stable in, in uh, sewage systems. And uh, certainly it, it poses much less of a risk of infection for, for wastewater workers than uh, uh, the plethora of pathogens, uh, yeah. pathogens that are already in there. So, uh, you know, normal uh, personal protective procedures are, are more than adequate to uh, protect people who are doing the sampling. 
<laughs> That's good to know. I mean, there's enough stuff already in there to be worried about, let alone uh, adding in more risk for those right. uh, those essential workers. So could you explain a bit more about the role that the Canadian Water Network uh, is playing in coordinating this new testing process in Canada? Sure. Uh, the Canadian Water Network is an interesting uh, creation. It, it was uh, founded uh, in 2001 and uh, actually uh, largely driven by the Walkerton experience and uh, the sort of lack of coordination of water research in Canada between uh, um, academic research at universities and uh, the user sector. So it got uh, two cycles of funding under something called the National Centers of Excellence uh, uh, program of uh, uh, federal government. Um, in, through which it uh, established connections between academic researchers and uh, water utilities and, and uh, people who needed to, to use that knowledge. After that funding uh, uh, ran out, it uh, uh, established itself as a, as a knowledge broker um, uh, for the industry and, and basically uh, uh, serves in a, uh, uh, a role to promote uh, exchange of information. So when the um, uh, pandemic became apparent and, and the water utilities who were part of the Canadian Water Network uh, began asking questions, uh, uh, you know, what does this mean for us? And, you know, one of their questions was about the, the risk to, uh, to their workers. But uh, the other uh, thing that became apparent was the, this use in, in the Netherlands and, and quickly picked up in several other countries uh, of uh, sampling wastewater for detection of, um, of SARS-CoV-2. Um, the Canadian Water Network basically established some advisory committees uh, to uh, uh, and, and uh, uh, took it upon itself to share information uh, amongst uh, people who were uh, capable of, of uh, doing this kind of work and uh, providing a window on uh, the international work uh, because the Canadian Water Network represents Canada on the something called the Global Water Research Coalition, uh, hmm. which rep- represents a number of uh, uh, highly active countries uh, in the water research area. Very interesting. It, a research coordinating group that yeah spans all the disciplines there. So I guess the next step is, where are we actively monitoring? Are we using this kind of technology in Canada right now to monitor wastewater uh, for SARS-CoV-2? Y- yes, we are. Um, there, there's a number of groups that uh, uh, you know we initially began working with in Canadian Water Network. The, uh, the main groups that uh, uh, we got things off the ground with uh, were at the BC Centers for Disease Control in Vancouver, the uh, Alberta Provincial Public uh, Health Lab and the University of Alberta uh, in Edmonton. There's also a group at the University of Calgary that's working with public health authorities there. Um, there's a group at the Toxicology Research Center in uh, Saskatchewan, um, the National Microbiology Lab of uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada uh, became involved. We uh, were working with uh, researchers at the University of Waterloo, uh, University of Windsor, University of Ottawa, and um, call Polytechnique in Montreal. These are all groups who had the basic capacity to uh, to take this kind of work on. At the same time, uh, the Canadian Water Network invited people who, uh, you know, would sign on to uh, 
the principles of, of our approach. And um, uh, currently there's 129 different uh, groups and individuals who are part of this coalition that, that uh, Canadian Water Network has established. The actual number of communities that are being monitored, I can't give you a pre- uh, precise number. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it differs. Uh, uh, in Alberta, um, the uh, the group out of uh, the University of Alberta and the Provincial Public Health Lab are monitoring 12 wastewater treatment plants um, in the province. Um, those It's not 12 communities, though, because uh, um, Calgary has three wastewater treatment plants in that group of 12. And um, the uh, there's two wastewater treatment plants in the Edmonton region uh, that serve from St. Albert through to Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Hmm. So I, I guess if you have only two uh, wastewater treatment facilities in the Edmonton region and we're only testing there, what can we do with this kind of information? What does it actually tell us? Is it only saying it's a yes or no, is there COVID present? Or does this actually tell more about the level number of cases um, on the population that's served by that sewer system? Well, those are good questions. Uh, the uh, the original attraction of uh, of this technique uh, came from, from the original results out of the Netherlands where they uh, pointed out that they actually uh, it appeared that they could give an early warning of of um, the arrival of um, COVID in the community. Uh, the reality is that uh, a lot of things have to be right for that to work, um, and uh, uh, that probably can't be counted upon, uh, upon across the board. Although, you know, we've recently had a situation develop in, in Yellowknife uh, last week uh, where, where they uh, believe that they've uh, got uh, cases in the community that they didn't know about from clinical testing. And so uh, that's caused them to uh, uh, implement more um, restrictive measures and, and require people who have been under quarantine to get tested. Yeah, that's um, valuable. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the story will be written over time. I have to say that the expectations that uh, this technique would uh, automatically uh, provide warnings wherever it's used um, probably won't apply in all cases because it depends on how frequently you test, uh, how quickly you can turn around the results, and how quickly you can communicate those results to uh, the public health authorities. And um, a lot of places are only sampling once a week. So how much warning can you give uh, with a once a week warning? And then if you have a two or three day turnaround time in your lab, and then takes you another day or two to get the results to public health authorities, um, you might be able to say retrospectively that you had an early warning, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cats are already out of the bag at that point, <laughs> right? Exactly. So um, the the idea of using it for sentinel sites, uh, uh, like with the uh, the Yellowknife uh, case, where they don't have community spread at the moment, and mm-hmm. uh, they they pretty much knew where they had cases and had people quarantined, but uh, they couldn't explain what they saw in the wastewater from from what they had, uh, had known about. So, you know, that that's an intriguing thing. I think the the other major uh, application, which is is only in the uh, formative stages here, um, is, is to focus on high-risk uh, facilities. So 
Right. Uh, there is there is a, uh, a large new research project being uh, launched in in Edmonton to uh, look at long term care facilities uh, that's mm. being federally funded, uh, and at the same time that same federal funding source is uh, uh, funding studies in Ottawa and uh, Toronto region uh, to you know basically go into the sewer network and collect the uh, the wastewater directly from a long term care facility. There, there it, it sounds good in, in theory. There's a lot of challenges to overcome to actually make it um, a valuable uh, activity. And um, there's the reality, uh, I mean, the people out of University of Calgary that have been studying, they, they've done uh, surveys around all of the uh, major hospitals in Calgary, I have, have discovered uh, retrospectively that uh, the, the COVID patients in the hospital are usually the ones who are there, certainly in intensive care, are too ill to be um, um, self-toileting. So mm. their, their waste won't show up in the, uh, uh, the sewage system from the hospital. Uh, so, yeah, when, so when they pick things up, it's probably more indicative of, of visitors and staff, which is worth knowing. But yeah, there, mm. there's a, a lot of complications that go into interpreting uh, the results that you can get from this. Yeah, I guess I, I hadn't considered that, that they're, they're not self-toileting at that point of the, the people that are of highest risk, I guess. Which is also a concern with the long-term care facilities. So, yeah. that, you know, uh, residents who are in diapers uh, aren't going to show up in, in, the, in the system. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a that's a lot to think about and a lot of logistics. I'm sure, especially with when you have a facility that doesn't have as much use or or something, then you've got a there. There's timing issues. Let's just say in the pipes and leave it there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so this is clearly a tool that we do have at our disposal, and it's it's currently being figured out what what kind of role it will play moving forward. Is this a, a technology that we think will be used more with the COVID-19 pandemic, but it's going to be a tool that we could be able to use to react to a future epidemic and be able to have at our disposal a lot faster as early warning signals? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, that's an excellent question because, uh, you know, given the suddenness of uh, realization that we had to deal with this pandemic, um, the the clinical monitoring and you know the wastewater monitoring basically grabbed what was available, which is this PCR technology. And uh, you know anybody that had experience in the area and, and the inclination, uh, uh, you know, tried to apply those that technology. Um, at the same time, there's been a, a, a fairly massive research effort uh, uh, around the world to look at uh, are there other ways uh, to, to detect pathogens like this uh, at low levels. And uh, in the group that uh, uh, I uh, work with at the University of Alberta, uh, they got funding, uh, I think, in February uh, from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research to develop a a uh, completely new uh, molecular biology technique, which uh, uh, mm. they've been focusing on the clinical testing uh, and and have basically, uh, they've now published to show that they can get uh, as good or uh, better results, uh, better in the sense of much easier to use, uh, more able to take out to point of care testing. Uh, and when it's compared against the, uh, the PCR approach, 
And uh, so techniques like that may ultimately uh, become useful for the wastewater monitoring as well. But, uh, you know, that's mostly going to be a, an application for the future. The good news is with, uh, with these molecular biology techniques is that, you know, once you've proven that they can work and, and, and you uh, uh, get the experience and the equipment necessary to do it, all you need is the genetic code to uh, uh, tackle a different pathogen. Right. And, and, yeah. And, and that, I mean, if you think about it, you know, there's been a lot of concern about lack of testing and whatever else uh, for the clinical testing. And, and a lot of that criticism is valid in terms of, um, you know, particularly south of the border failing to harness the uh, um, uh, techniques that they, they could have uh, done. Mm-hmm. But the idea that uh, all you needed, and I mean, the same applies to the development of the vaccine, is as soon as you got the genetic code, people were working on it the next day. Yeah. You know, that, and, and that's, that's kind of stunning uh, in terms of uh, uh, scientific progress, that, that uh, if you have these techniques in place, and someone just has to give you the blueprint, uh, away you go and you can uh, start using it. So the fact that we've conducted millions of tests now clinically um, in, in the, you know, less than a year, uh, it's hard to imagine anything else in, in previous history where we could have scaled up that quickly. Yeah, it's certainly been an impressive, impressive response and it definitely lays the groundwork for a quick response in the future to future pandemics. Some of the drawbacks that you mentioned already focus on logistics. So getting the samples, getting those samples to be tested, and once the tests are complete, getting those messages in a timeline that is valuable to then make decisions. I'm curious, is cost a major factor at this point? And is that a barrier for further implementation? Well, cost is always going to be a factor because it's uh, obviously nothing is free. I think a larger constraint, if we wanted to implement it everywhere, the uh, constraint would be in terms of the number of skilled people and access to equipment and even more so access to reagents uh, that are part of the analytical scheme. Um, that's one of the challenges that uh, that we've run into with uh, uh, our partners and all of this is that some of the critical reagents they need to to do the analysis uh, are in demand everywhere, and uh, there's been supply chain issues uh, uh, for sure. Conceptually, the the cost thing, uh, and that's one of the reasons there's been as much investment as there has been, is the idea of being able to collect a single sample for uh, an entire community that might tell you something useful compared with having to try and sample everybody clinically in that community. Uh, you know, you, you, you don't need to be a mathematician yeah. <laughs> to figure out that <laughs> exactly. there's a lot fewer analyses involved. Uh, clearly, the, 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 the trick is uh, how useful is the information you get, and, and that's very much context-specific. But yeah, cost is not the primary barrier. Uh, you know, the the Netherlands who started this whole thing are now basically covering almost their entire population in the country. Wow. Uh, uh, you know, every wastewater plant that uh, um, they have is is uh, is being uh, monitored. the The cost per plant uh, is is not a huge factor. Where things get more challenging is when you want to take on this idea of sampling in the sewer network. 
because mm, yeah. sam- sampling in sewers is a dangerous activity. Um, you know, the hydrogen sulfide is produced in sewers and that can kill people. Um, mm-hmm. there, any kind of confined space uh, activity is um, uh, obviously a, <clears throat> a major concern. So, you know, clearly you can't do that kind of sampling without using the trained professionals who normally are engaged, which again is a, a limited supply and somebody has to pay for that time, you know, for them doing that versus whatever else they, they uh, would normally be doing. So, yeah, yeah, definitely adds a, another, another risk level and another whole level to that kind of testing. Now, I, I, this kind of leads me to my final question and uh, I have to ask it. Do we have to worry about the SARS-CoV-2 virus in our water supply? So if I turn on my tap uh, right now, do I have to worry about the virus that survived going through a a wastewater treatment facility? Uh, Is this something that people should be concerned about? Well, finally, I've got some good news for you. Uh, The answer to that one is (laughs) is a definite no. Um, the, uh, the reality is that it, it, it doesn't look like SARS-CoV-2, uh, survives intact. That is in a, in a, uh, state that would allow it to infect someone, uh, even in reaching the wastewater treatment plant and certainly, uh, uh in, in going through a wastewater treatment plant, uh, there's not a concern. And then, um, you know, frankly, if, if, uh, the uh, discharge from your wastewater treatment plant was going directly back into your water treatment plant. You'd have other things to worry about. Um, <laughs> the, the reality is that uh, there's uh, safe drinking water practice requires uh, that you maintain some some distance and separation between mm-hmm. a wastewater discharge and a drinking water intake, and then the drinking water goes through additional treatment. Uh, all of which would uh, inactivate uh, this virus if it got anywhere near that. So, I mean, that's probably uh, one of the things we have to give no thought to. It's uh, drinking water is entirely safe when it comes to SARS-CoV-2. All right, everyone listening to this can sleep well tonight and drink well as well. (laughs) Uh, I would just like to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I've learned a lot and it's uh it's, it's pretty incredible this uh this tool that we have at our disposal and, and hopefully it can be uh retooled quickly in the future if if we should need it um and it can be deployed efficiently yeah the reality is it's not if but when we'll have another one uh hopefully yeah. hopefully it'll be more like 100 years instead of uh, another year but clearly uh, having these capabilities in the future is going to be important. <laughs> I was saying that in a hopeful tone, I guess. <laughs> uh, where can listeners find out more about your important research and more about the Canadian Water Network? Uh, well, CWN keeps a very good uh, way, uh, uh, website. Uh, it's just uh, CWN-RCE, which is just the French uh, uh, version of that. So if you just go www.cwn-rce, you'll get right there. And uh, it's a very user-friendly site. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah, everyone just uh, keep safe and stay socially distant. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. 
Check out the show notes because I'll leave links for the Canadian Water Network so you can find what they're doing and learn more from their awesome website. Thanks so much to Dr. Steve for taking the time to speak with me and going through all the technical difficulties that are associated with long distance interviews. I really appreciate it. I also really appreciate the team from the Canadian Water Network for being so supportive and helping to share the message. Thank you so much, guys. You guys are awesome. Keep up the great work. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes coming out. Leave us a rating and a review. It means so much to us to hear back from all of our listeners. I'm the host and producer, David Evans, and I'd just like to thank the rest of the team from the Aquatic Biosphere Project, specifically to Paula Polman, Sophie Severa, Anna Bettini. Thanks for all of your help. To learn more about the Aquatic Biosphere Project and what we're doing here in Alberta, telling the story of water, check us out at aquaticbiosphere.ca. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, we'd love to hear them. Email us at conservation at aquaticbiosphere.org. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave us a review. It really helps us out. Get excited for next Monday when we release our next storytelling episode all about seawater desalination. We talk to Heather Cooley from the Pacific Institute about water stress, how many cities across the world are actually about to run out of water, and how seawater desalination might be able to help. And don't forget, we have our Global Ghost Gear Initiative Deep Dive episode coming out tomorrow, our interview with Joel Bazik. And then on Thursday, we have our interview with Allie and Burton from the Emerald Sea Protection Society. We're learning about ghost nets for the rest of the week, and I love it. Get ready for those too. Thanks for listening to the What Are We Doing podcast. And until next time, it's been a splash.